Tonight, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Uh, this evening we begin this 17th chapter, but before I begin it, I, I have to tell you that we're just going to get a start in these first six verses of chapter 17. Um, we'll, we'll get our feet wet just a little bit and hope, you, hope to leave you with a taste for more in the later lessons. I started this message actually before I went on vacation and there was so much here that I ended up going on and on and on. I've got it into four parts and I don't know before I get finished it might be more parts than that. But I'm glad that we finally arrived at this chapter. Uh, This is, I think you've heard me say this before, one of the most fascinating parts of the book. I mean have I said that before? Well this is one of the most fascinating parts of the book. I mean I I read chapter 17 and 18 and, and sometimes it leaves me with a blank stare on my face. I mean, it's exciting in some ways, it's very intriguing in some ways, but it's also very eerie in some ways. There's kind of an ominous note that's going on in this chapter, and you, you, you almost feel the powers of darkness leaning in on you to see if you're going to discover too many of their secrets. I mean, are you going to expose them and let people know that religion is not always what it seems to be? I suppose one of the most intriguing parts that we have about the Bible is that it is a book of wisdom and it ties the past and the future and helps us to make sense of all of that. But there's more than just what we find in the Bible and what we're going to talk about tonight. The Bible's a part of it, uh, but we're going to look at some things this evening that are actually verified by historical accounts. Now, if we never had a word of history that backed up anything that was in the Bible, I would still believe the Bible. Because it's God's holy word. But it just so happens that with this, there's plenty of extra biblical support. And not only do we see uh, this in history, but you can read some of it going on in your newspapers today. And that's what makes it so ominous because you can't help but think how close that we could be to the coming of the Lord. I mean, it could be really close and all of these things that we're talking about will be fulfilled. Let's look at the scriptures and we'll get an idea of somewhat I'm talking about this evening. Revelation 17, verse number 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had seven vials, uh, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who have come to hear your word tonight. And Lord, I I pray that you would help us with this. Uh, There are some things that might be upsetting to some people. I I think we have a congregation here that's interested in your word and they want to know truth and will accept it gladly. But there's things that are not pleasant that we have to talk about concerning other people. And so we just ask you, Lord, to help us through this and we'll give you the praise for it. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we get into the study of the 17th chapter, one of the things I have to tell you is uh, this is one of those parenthetical sections of Revelation. And what that means, as we've learned before, is that we're not looking at what happens here in chronological order. And so when we step from chapter 16 into 17, it's, it's not a progression of time, but rather what happens here in chapter 17 is that we step back and we look at some events that are happening all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation period. Now at the close of chapter 16, I hope that you remember this, but there was an angel that poured out the seventh vial of wrath, and the nations of the world were ready to do battle against Christ and against his saints and his army of angels. And we, we call that battle, I think you know, the Battle of Armageddon. And that's the last battle that takes place upon the earth. And in the end of the 16th chapter, we're looking actually at just a few days before the end of the tribulation. And then after that, of course, begins the glorious millennial reign of Christ on the earth. The account of Armageddon doesn't actually resume until we get over into chapter 19, verse 11. And in the meantime, we're in a section that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation. And this chronicles the rise of the Antichrist and tells us what's going on in his kingdom religiously. Now, there's more than enough controversy here for us to spend a great deal of time on in chapter 17 and 18. But we're busy right now with this question. What does the Bible mean when it's talking about Babylon in the, in the book of Revelation? Is it referring to a religious system? Is it referring to a political system and an economic system? Or does it refer to both? And my opinion is that the scriptures are actually referring to both. There are two parts to this. The religious part is known as ecclesiastical Babylon, and that will begin in the first part of the tribulation, and it's actually what helps the Antichrist rise to power. This is the system that will actually push through the, uh, the Antichrist agenda by wedding religion, wedding what is the apostate church with the Antichrist, and it'll grow stronger and stronger and stronger until it reaches the midpoint of the tribulation, and then the Antichrist will actually crush it. He will set himself up as God, and at that point we're not dealing so much with religious Babylon anymore, but then we'll be talking about the economic political system. Both of those are going to be destroyed. Now chapter 17 is about the rise of this ecclesiastical portion, which I said will end at the middle of the tribulation. And then when we get into chapter 18, that's the rise and the fall of the political system. Uh, that is destroyed actually at the end of chapter 16, but it's explained more in chapter 18. That happens when the angel pours out the seventh vial. The key verse for the section that we're reading right now is verse number 5. It says, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, an abomination of the earth. Now this is called Mystery Babylon. That's an indication that what we're speaking of here is something that is spiritual. This is a spiritual entity. So this is false worship which is a combination of all the religions of the world headed up by apostate Christianity. Now, since Christianity is the chief supporter, apostate Christianity is uh, one of the chief supporters of the Antichrist, we have to note here that the way that it gains such power is by compromise. 
Now that's not new for apostates. Apostates have always been involved in this. And what they've done is they've taken heathen practices and uh, what pagans do and they mixed them into a bowl with the doctrines of Christianity and made it all one. Now, pagans, of course, have been here longer than Christians. And so some of the practices that we're talking about here go all the way back to the very beginning of false religion. And forms of it are still found in the world today, in the religions of the world today. All of it has a common ancestry. And we're going to discuss that. And the ancestry actually comes from the ancient city of Babylon. So Babylon here is the mother of harlots. And its influence is as old as the ancient city of Babylon, yet it is as modern folks as churches that are within just a few blocks of our own. Now the purpose of the Antichrist using religion is found in chapter 13, verse number 4. It says, And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is likened to the beast, and who is able to make war with him? This is the whole point of this religious system. Uh, It's to build up the Antichrist and to help him get into power. You see, Satan has never been bothered by religion. At least religion that he can control. Uh, Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. And that couldn't have been said better than Satan said it himself. Religion is a means to an end, and Satan is going to use this to bring the Antichrist into power. Now, we also read in chapter 13 about the false prophet who becomes the spokesperson for this religion of the Antichrist. And his purpose is to be able to unite a politically divided people all across the world under one religion. Affect them with religion, because all people are naturally religious. Bring them all together in one religion, and then when he's done that, and when he's in power, then he cuts the religion out from underneath of it, and he leaves only the politics. So apostate Christianity actually becomes the willing dupe of the Antichrist. And so, uh, here he is, uh, the Antichrist is in power. Uh, All the religions of the world are under this one conglomerate that throws its power to the state. But we also see here that religion rides the power of the beast. So it uses that alliance of political power to also help the church gain gain great influence. And that's why we see in verse number 3, which we'll talk about in one of the later messages, that the woman is sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. And that means that the political or the religious power is sitting on top of the political power as well. Now, if you know church history, what do you think of when you think of political power joined with ecclesiastical power. The first thing that ought to come to your mind is the Roman Catholic Church, Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is described this way by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, Roman Catholicism is the devil's greatest masterpiece. It is such a departure from the Christian faith and the New Testament teaching that her dogma is a counterfeit. She is, as the scripture puts it, the whore. Now let me very solemnly warn you that if you rejoice in these ecumenical approaches to Rome, you are denying the blood of martyrs. There are innocent people who are being deluded by this kind of falsity, and it's your business and mine to open their eyes. Now I take that quote very seriously, and it might not be pleasant for everyone to have their eyes open about the abominations of Roman Catholicism. Now, this actually goes back further than Catholicism. Uh, This is Mystery Babylon, as the Scripture puts it, so it's much older than that. Uh, Babylon is the mother of harlots, and Roman Catholicism is one of the daughters. 
Of course, Roman Catholicism has also spawned its own, its own harlot daughters. And folks, that makes this one great big frightening family that we're talking about here. Roman Catholicism is so integral to the reign of the Antichrist that I really think it's only fitting that we give credit where credit is due. And what took place in ancient history had a view towards the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church that came in the 4th century. It rose to power then. It's gained power throughout the centuries. It is, it is uh, in the world today. It's very prominent. And in the future, it's going to be allied with the Antichrist. So each of the headings that I'll have in this sermon will have Roman Catholicism as the centerpiece. Now, you're only going to get one of these tonight, and the future messages we'll talk about some more, and we'll, we'll go on with it. But tonight, what I want to speak to you about is the preparation for the Roman church. Well, here we have to travel back into ancient history, and we'll find where the foundation for apostasy was laid. Babylon is always no good in the scriptures. The connotations are always bad. It began with evil intentions, and it was actually, Babylon was actually the first united attempt by men to defy the God of heaven. Babylon is a source of idolatry. Now, it began just a few generations after the flood. And we had a preview of it back in chapter 14, and we looked at it briefly there, but we're going to look a little bit more extensively at this this evening. But Babylon is so sinister, and that original kingdom was so powerful that what grew out of man's rebellion all the way back then is still rearing its ugly head in the multiple religions of the world today. Babylonian worship has not disappeared. And in fact, it's found in some of the most important dogmas of Roman Catholicism. Now, first of all, I want to look at the ruling history of Babylon. And the story begins with a man by the name of Nimrod. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we're given a genealogy of the sons of Noah. Uh, We're talking here about the years that were immediately after the flood. And the repopulation of the earth began with the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Part of Shem's descendants became the Israelites. Uh, The descendants of Ham are the ones who have caused the greatest evil in the world. And the descendants of Japheth are the ones that are most, you know, further or least connected to, to Israel than all the others. But among the descendants of Ham, there is this man named Nimrod. Noah pronounced a blessing on two of his sons, on Shem and Japheth, but on Ham, he pronounced no blessing. And and that was a prophecy of how his descendants would turn out. So we look in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 10. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizram, and Phut and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan, verse 8, and Cush begat Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erak and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now notice there it says that Nimrod is a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now folks, that is not a favorable note. That's not a compliment to him because actually this could be translated as a great rebel against the Lord. In fact, the word or name Nimrod actually means let us rebel against the Lord. So Nimrod is actually the first king in the world's history. 
And rather than gather people into a kingdom that would be ruled by God, Nimrod had a kingdom that ruled other men by force. His kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. And the Bible says that these are in the land of Shinar. Now, Nimrod then is the first glimpse of a man who had aspirations like the Antichrist. He was a very ungodly man. And you can trace the kingdoms of the Gentiles that have always desired to rule over men by force to this man named Nimrod. He's the one that began it all. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, we see the outworking of Nimrod's rebellion. If you look in chapter 11, verse number 1, it says, "...and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech." And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, Nimrod's rebellion began with a revolt against God's plan to repopulate the earth. See, it was actually God's intention that man would spread out throughout the earth, and you'd find people in every corner of the globe. And then man would actually have dominion over the world, and he would subdue it all. So you'd have all these people groups in the many different parts of the world. But Nimrod was against that plan. And so what he did was begin to group people together, and he began a kingdom. God's plan is what you call nationalism. That's divergence. But Nimrod's plan was unity, which is actually convergence. Now, if we wanted to put that into modern terms, God intended that there would be a diversity of nations and governments. But the plan of world leaders today is that we have a global economy, we have a world court, we have world governance... And it starts in places like the United Nations. You see, whenever you hear any leader of the United States talking about surrendering any of the United States' sovereignty, they are actually reverting back to the original plan of Nimrod. That was his philosophy. So Nimrod's defiance was to unite the people, and not only to unite them in government, but to unite them in religion. And the religion would not be God's religion. And so these people got together and they built this great tower and that was the first form of idolatry because the intention of that tower was to make a god or different gods in the heavens that would be worshipped. So what we're talking about here are actually the original astrologers. These are the people from which which we get the worship of the zodiac. They are the inventors of mythology. If you ever studied that in school, mythology actually comes out of this kingdom of Nimrod. And Nimrod's religion is still a part of the religions of the world today. So Nimrod's tower is this open rebellion against God. It's a united effort by men to throw off the yoke of God and force men into a government with a false religion. Does that sound like anything you've ever heard of in history? Well, God wasn't pleased with that. And so what God did was he confused the language of the builders, and he forced them to go into his original plan. So with these multiple languages, the people spread out, and so we have the multiple nations of the world today, and we don't have one kingdom and one king. So you see, what God has always been doing in Scripture, he's always been moving people apart on a national level, while the men of this world have always been trying to get people together on a national level. That's why you have one kingdom warring against another, trying to conquer another people. 
Well, you might ask me then, well, what about the gospel? Doesn't the gospel unite us all? And, of course, the Bible does say there aren't any Americans, there aren't any Jews and Greeks and Russians in in, uh, God's eyes. But neither do we find the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles trying to use government as a means to bring people together. And so you don't find in the New Testament any efforts to try to do away with nations and to do away with governments. And even Jesus acknowledged the separation of government when he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And so the simple truth of the matter is that God's kingdom and Caesar's kingdom cannot be co-regents. You can't put those together. Now, when man finally does accomplish the unification of governments of the world, then you have the kingdom of the Antichrist. That's where it's going to end up. One world government will not take place until God allows it under the Antichrist. Now, uh, God desires that we be under one government, but the one government that we'll be under is a righteous, holy government. And God will be the king of that, and he's the only one that can ever bring us lasting peace. So we won't see a world government until the time of the Antichrist. No, we'll keep trying and keep trying, and they always do. And God allows it. And his intention for allowing it will be that he will destroy the governments of the world forever. So Nimrod's kingdom, then, is the first rebellion against God. And the history of Babylon since that time has always been against God. Well, there's another very interesting piece about Babylon in Scripture that's often overlooked. And we find it in Genesis chapter 14. Now, in chapter 13, there's the story of Abraham and Lot. You remember how Abraham and Lot had to split up? And so Lot decided that he was going to live in the well-watered plains of Jordan. And so he went down to live in this wicked city of Sodom. Well, in chapter 14, there was a war that broke out. And Lot was captured during this war by a king named Chedorlaomer. And so Abraham had to go and rescue him. So in chapter 14, verse number 1, we find a very interesting reference here. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and king of Bela, which is, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. Now I want you to notice there in verse number one, it says, this happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. You remember Shinar? We read it about it a moment ago. That's Babylon. This is the kingdom where Babylon was. Now, this is the very first narrative in Scripture about this, about this kingdom in this way. And God does not list these. Moses did not list these kings in this order by accident. God has a purpose in the way that he does this. And so Amraphel is listed first here because he is the most important of these kings. After Abraham defeated the kings... He stopped on his return, and he worshipped in a place that was called Salem. And there he met one of the most mysterious figures that we find in the Bible. That was Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and he, he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. Salem is the same place as Jerusalem. And so here's the first place in history where we see two cities, the cities of Jerusalem and Babylon, set in opposition against one another. And so Jerusalem becomes emblematic of the people of God. It's called Zion, while Babylon is always evil. It stands for idolatry. It's always against God. And throughout the history of Israel, it remains the same. So that's the early history of Babylon. 
Most of us are more familiar with the later history. And that's where uh, Babylon came and, and took Judah into captivity. And they destroyed the temple and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And the king at that time was King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that name? Uh, that's when Babylon became a world power. Now, there's much in Scripture about that kingdom, and there's a comparison that's made between the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of the Antichrist. One of the striking similarities is that huge image that Nebuchadnezzar set up and commanded the people to bow down and worship him. That's Babylon. And what does the Antichrist do? During the tribulation period, he makes an image of himself, and he commands that people bow down and worship him. Well, let's suffice to say right now that Babylon has always been the archenemy of God's people. And when we see references to it in Revelation, the character of Babylon is unchanged. It's, it, it spawned the greatest wickedness that the world has ever seen. And it's still, that wickedness is still here. Now later we're going to come back and we'll talk some more about these political connections and other parts of prophecy. But we're going to spend uh, the last few minutes concentrating on the religious history of Babylon. Now, it's hard to separate the ruling history and the religious history because Nimrod's rebellion, of course, is rooted in religion. Now, here is where the story becomes even more fascinating. What was Nimrod's religion like? Now, here's where we go outside of the biblical accounts, and there are ancient historical records that tell us about this. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you where we find the references in the Bible to the same. Now, the main part of this religion of Nimrod centers on Nimrod's wife, who is named Semiramis. And she was the first high priestess of this Babylonian religion. Now, let me quote something to you from W.L. Criswell concerning the cornerstone of Babylonian religion. She, that's Semiramis, became the first high high priestess of an idolatrous system. In answer to the promise made to Eve that the seed of the woman would deliver the race, Semiramis, when she gave birth to a son, said that he was miraculously conceived by a sunbeam. And she offered her son as the promised deliverer of the earth. His name was Tammuz. When he was grown, a wild boar slew him. But after 40 days of the mother's weeping, he was raised from the dead. And this story of Semiramis and Tammuz began the cult worship of the mother and child that grew throughout the world. In Assyria, she is called Ishtar, and her son still Tammuz. In Phoenicia, she was called Astarte, or Ashtoreth, and her son Baal, or Tammuz. Baal, everybody knows who Baal is. In Egypt, she was called Isis, and her son was called Osiris, or Horus. In Greece, she was called Aphrodite, and her son was called Eros. Among the Romans, she was called Venus, and her son was called Cupid. The cult of the worship of mother and child spread throughout the whole earth. She was worshipped by the offering of a wafer, a little cake, to her as the queen of heaven. And there was always 40 days of Lent, weeping over the destruction of Tammuz before the feast of Ishtar, at which time his resurrection was celebrated. The sign of Tammuz was an Ishtar egg, a symbol of resurrection to life. This... Okay. The secret of Babylonian mystery 
It's found in priestly ablutions and in sacramental rites and ritual, in the dedication of virgins to the gods, in purgatorial fires, and in a thousand other things that are familiar to us today. Now, somebody's going to ask me later about Easter eggs, and I'll tell you, I've totally changed my mind. So this is almost bone-chilling. I mean, I began to study this, and what we have here, you see why I call this the history of the preparation for the Roman church. Why is the Roman church so insidious? It is because it is the repository for the woman child cult of Babylon. Now, where does the Bible reference this? Well, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 44. And here there's a a lengthy portion of Scripture. I'm not going to take time to read this, uh, but uh, all of it. We're just going to read a portion of it. Jeremiah chapter 44. And verse number 15. Jeremiah 44, verse number 15. Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by, a great multitude... Even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt and Pathras answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the Queen of Heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings, and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, For then had we plenty of victuals, and were well, and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things, and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven, and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her, and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? Now here Jeremiah... It's speaking to these people, and he's calling them out of this worship of the mother-child cult. Now, you notice what they call her? She is called the Queen of Heaven. And did you know that there is no terminology in all of Scripture for the Queen of Heaven except the cultic worship of, this heathen, of the heathen gods? And yet, Roman Catholicism calls Mary what? The Queen of Heaven. Now, you go over to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8, if you would, verse number 14. In Jeremiah, we see the queen of heaven. And in Ezekiel, we see the sun. Ezekiel, chapter 8, verse number 14. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again. And thou shalt see greater abominations than these. Tammuz is the false Messiah. And the weeping that we find here is because, remember, Semiramis lost her son. That's where you get the practice of Lent. It was part of this Babylonian cult, and it started all the way back with Nimrod right after the flood. Now, this false religion, then, is the mother of all harlots, and that is the heart and soul of Roman Catholicism today. The false Messiah is her Messiah. And as Nimrod sought to destroy redemption, the Roman Catholic Church leads millions of people into hell every year. Now listen to how this multiplies. When you get into the New Testament era, then you have the Roman government that's in power. And the Romans, as we all know, worshipped all these different gods of mythology. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul traveled throughout the Roman Empire, and there you see him you know, speaking against the temple of Diana in, in Ephesus, and, and uh, the other, uh, that's actually Aphrodite and, uh, to the Romans. And, and these were spread all over the Roman Empire. Well, the gods of mythology, that's who the Romans worship. Now, the Caesars were also worshipped as God, and the sticking point between the Romans and the Christians was because the Christians would never bow down and say that Caesar was Lord. In other words, they were not going to admit that Caesar was one of the gods. Now, they, they, the Romans would have been happy with Christian religion and just accepted it as one of these other many religions that were in the empire, except for this one point. They would not accept Caesar as Lord. Now, Caesar is actually the high priest, or was the high priest, of the Roman cultic religion. He's their high priest. You know what his name was, what they called Caesar? Pontifex Maximus. Do you know what the title of the pope is? Pontifex Maximus. So he's the high priest of Babylon. Well, I'm running out of time tonight, so I'm going to continue this in the next message. But I want to make one more point, and I'm going to elaborate on this later. The Pope has become the high priest, not of Christ, but the high priest of Mary. Now, poor Mary, she had nothing to do at all with this. I mean, there's nothing about the kinds of things that Roman Catholicism does with Mary in the Bible. Roman Catholicism has actually taken Semiramis, They've taken Isis, they've taken Ashtoreth, they've taken Venus, they've taken Aphrodite, and they just renamed her to Mary. And there's not an ounce of difference between them. Not an ounce of difference between how they worship Mary and the way that the ancient cults did. It's the same old mother cult worship, child worship, mother-child worship. So she's called the Queen of Heaven. And... The Roman Catholic system, she is actually the abomination that's spoken of in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Folks, Roman Catholicism is not Christian. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Zion. It is Babylon. And it's the same old wicked cult that built the tower to heaven and forced men into, uh, into obedience and to bow to their gods. And we'll get into that more later and see that in history, what the Roman Catholic Church has forced people to do. I mean, that is a bloodthirsty religion. And it's the same old religion of Nimrod. See, we thought we got rid of that 4,000 years ago. But it's still around today, and it's found in the cathedrals of Catholicism. All that they did in the 4th century was change the pagan temples under Constantine. They changed the foreign temples to Christian church, or the pagan temples to Christian churches. So now what do you have? You have kings and presidents that consort with the Pope and ask for his blessings. They bow down and they kiss his ring. And do you know, looking at the history of it, the history of the popes is written in the blood of the martyrs. And you'll find it right here in Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. That's kind of an ominous note to end on, isn't it? Well, what do we do? Well, I don't think we end there. This is ecclesiastical Babylon. I don't want to end with the Roman church. And and we don't need to climb on board with them and their worship of Mary and all of those things that they do. So let's don't end there. Let's end with the true Messiah. It's in with Jesus Christ because he's the one that brings salvation and everlasting life. It's because of his blood that was shed on the cross that our sins are washed away. So we need him. We don't need Mary. We don't need the popes. We don't need the worship of the saints and all of that that they go through. We need Jesus Christ and him alone. We'll stick with that and not with the Babylonian cult worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have spent together tonight. I realize that we're talking about difficult subjects and 
things that people outside of this church would be very upset uh, that we're talking about here. But we feel it's our responsibility to treat the truth of God's Word. We, we, treat it, we teach it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so we come to it, we can't avoid it. We have to speak the truth of what's in your Word, and so, Lord, help us to do that and to stand by it. Bless your people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.